Part 5. A1, 2, 3. I learned the hard way that you should wear gloves when you change your taillights, or the oils from your fingers will cause the bulb to burn out more quickly. The left taillight I had recently changed had done that exact thing, and the flickering of red and blue lights set my palpitations aflutter. It wasn't the first time I had been pulled over drunk, and I found that as long as you remained calm and had your paperwork in order, you were most likely to get to stay in your car and go home. Besides, I told myself, I only had four beers. They are not going to smell it on my breath, and I'll probably pass a breathalyzer test. I popped a mint in my mouth anyway. The officer walked up to my window, and I had my hands firmly placed at ten and two. Like a true professional alcoholic, my window was already down, and my license and registration were ready. Good evening, he said, as he shined a flashlight in my face and around the truck's cap. Hello, sir, I said with the friendliest smile I could muster. Do you know why I pulled you over? He was now looking through the back window. Actually, no, sir. I don't think I was speeding. You weren't. But your taillights are out. I was genuinely surprised, but added some sauce to my frustration. Dang it. I said, I just replaced them. There must be something wrong with them. Electrical, maybe. Maybe. He said, as his eyes narrowed. He stepped closer to my window. Have you had anything to drink tonight? Fuck. I thought. Your best option when dealing with the police is honesty. Even when you've broken the law, admitting your mistake will sometimes let you off with a warning, but that rarely applies to drunk driving. Yes, I said and then mentally damned myself. I tried to recover. I was just studying with some friends, and we had a couple of beers. But it's been several hours, and I feel fine. I'm gonna need you to step out of the truck, please. He said as he backed away, walking back toward his car. I got out and started following the path that his flashlight was illuminating. We were on the side of the freeway, and I noticed his backup had already arrived. I imagined what people thought as they drove by us, and I wondered if it looked as bad as it was starting to feel. I muttered a silent prayer, wishing you or Shannon weren't in any of the hundreds of cars zooming past, witnessing my inevitable arrest. The police officer told me to hold my arms wide and touch my nose, only bending at the elbow. Then he had me stand on one leg and recite the alphabet, counting to three between each letter. Standing on one leg was no problem. I had spent the last several years skating drunk and had done much harder tricks than this while intoxicated. The alphabet was a bit more difficult, but I nailed it with phonetic ease. A one, two, three, B one, two, three, C one, two, three. I counted off as I balanced and again thought about how this must look to the people driving past. As I counted to three repeatedly, the echo of my voice made me laugh, and I struggled more with the task. He had seen enough and asked me to stop. I felt like I was killing it, but my stomach dropped when I saw him pull out the breathalyzer. The balance and counting I could do, but I couldn't fake a breathalyzer. An idea occurred to me as he started walking back over to where I was standing. I slowly slipped my hand into my pocket, increased the volume on my Holter monitor to the max, and then pushed the record button. My heart was thumping in my chest, and the beeps from the monitor were fast and loud. The officer lifted the breathalyzer to my mouth but stopped just short of my lips. He looked down at my waist as the monitor squawked in my pocket. I took the momentary hesitation as an opportunity to feign lightheadedness. I put my hand on my head and rocked slowly from side to side. Oh no, do you mind if I sit down? I asked him as I headed to the curb. I have a heart condition. I lied as I pulled my shirt up to show the wires connected to my chest. Every time my heart has an episode, this monitor goes off. The officer motioned to his partner with a nod, and they walked to his car. 
I sat alone behind my truck on the side of the freeway, wondering if I had done myself any favors or if I had just bought myself a little time before getting arrested. The officer came back over to me and asked how I was feeling. He helped me to my feet and told me to be safe. As I gingerly made my way back into my truck, he asked me if I needed anything, and I assured him I was already feeling better, pointing to my now-silenced holter. I was still driving home when the cardiologist's technician called my cell phone. Afraid I must have been having a heart attack based on the recording they had just received, I told them the increased heart rate was because I had been exercising. They reminded me not to record any events unless I had chest pain or palpitations and that an increased heart rate during exercise was normal. A few weeks later, my liver biopsy results showed a considerable amount of scarring. Coupled with the more legitimate results from the Holter monitor and my other symptoms, my doctor diagnosed me with hereditary hemochromatosis. She explained that I had inherited a genetic condition that causes the body to absorb excess iron from my diet. This iron then moves throughout the body, causing injury to the joints, heart, and liver, causing all my symptoms. She didn't bother performing genetic testing to confirm because the only possible alternative was that I was a major alcoholic, and I had still not let on about the amount of alcohol I consumed daily. Hemochromatosis gave me an excuse to pretend I didn't have a problem, and unfortunately, it gave you and Shannon a reason to do the same. It was easier to believe I had a rare genetic condition than a drinking problem. Hemochromatosis, also known as iron overload, comes in a few different flavors, and you have two options for acquiring the mutation. One is autosomal recessive, meaning I'd have to get one mutated gene from you and mom. The other is autosomal dominant, meaning only one of you has the mutation, but it is strong enough to give me the condition. Shannon was the first to be tested. Shannon was negative for the mutated gene, which hadn't ruled anything out, but it made the math a bit more complicated. When you tested negative, it whittled down our chances of continuing to have this excuse. The only other option was that my mother could have it, but I hadn't spoken to her in years, and there was no way to find out. The disease is rare in women, and the effects of iron overload disease are typically masked by menstruation. We were unlikely to glean any helpful information from her or the small town gossip we could likely hear from anyone. All signs pointed to this not being hereditary but rather a form of iron overload brought on by alcoholism, and I was now starting to develop cirrhosis. Shannon was always looking for opportunities to create separation between us being brothers or to put our mother down. This was his chance to do both. He told me the mutation was likely because our mom had an affair and that you weren't my biological father. I had a problem and needed help, but Shannon made me feel more alone than ever. He spent more time trying to think of potential suitors with hemochromatosis in the town where I was born than he did in seeing if I was okay. I was torn between admitting I had a problem or that you were potentially not my birth father. While Shannon continued his attempt to poke fun at my situation, I continued living in denial about my alcoholism. Hemochromatosis causes the blood to retain iron, so if you remove the blood, you remove the iron. Thousands of years ago, in ancient Greece, they would use leeches to remove the blood from patients thinking it would prevent or cure disease. In my case it actually would have helped. Instead of leeches, I had a prescription to donate a pint of blood every week. My doctor was supposed to monitor me through the process, but my case must have slipped through the cracks. I went from having an iron overload disorder to becoming severely anemic with iron deficiency. I wanted to learn more about my condition and started researching. This diagnosis of a rare genetic disorder masking a patient's lie of alcoholism felt like it was torn directly from an episode of House MD. I loved that show so much, and I was now living in one of the episodes. The longer I spent in and around the hospital, 
the more interested I became in medicine and the closer I came to admitting I had a problem. Almost on a whim, I decided to enroll in nursing school the following semester. Due to the anemia, I would get instantly intoxicated when drinking. A few beers were enough to knock me over, and my depression had become unbearable, but I would get lost in my study of human anatomy and physiology. I applied the same techniques I had picked up in music school and maintained a 4.0 GPA. I was also teaching music classes and nurturing a high level of alcoholism. To perform well under that level of stress, one must live a healthy lifestyle. The pressure was mounting quickly as my health declined. The depression made me feel like I had to leave Colorado and start over somewhere. Austin had the allure of live music, and the University of Texas had a great nursing program. I saved what I could and left for Austin at the end of my first nursing school semester. I was surprised you'd help me move a block away from the chaos of 6th Street after being diagnosed with an old man's alcoholism disease, but you never tried to talk me out of it. After you left me in Austin, I immediately started contemplating creative ways to commit suicide. I started taking iron supplements to trash my liver or heart. I figured that when I died, everyone would blame it on the disease, and no one had to know I had done it intentionally. Ironically, since I had donated far too much blood, the iron supplements helped reverse my anemia and made me feel better. I had gone from one extreme to the other and was now getting back to a moderate iron level. That's when I met Creekview Antonio. Part 6. Bag of Unused Organs Antonio was a very gay man who lived in the same apartment complex as me. He was the unspoken leader of a group of older men and women who played water volleyball in the apartment pool daily. I was painting on my balcony overlooking the pool when Antonio saw me and flagged me over. He invited me to play volleyball and introduced me to everyone. All the people gathered around the pool daily and Antonio's group lived in the Creekview apartment complex. I met my neighbors, and they showed me where they live. We gathered every day after work to play volleyball, barbecue, and drink beers. We all moved freely in and out of each other's apartments, and they fully welcomed me as part of their community. My depression was easier to manage, but it never went away. I think that's what most people don't understand about depression. I had everything someone would need to be happy. I was pursuing things I was passionate about and was surrounded by good friends. I had enough money to pay my rent and keep myself entertained. I laughed hard every day, but I always went home at the end of the day and fell back into a dark hole. I had screwed up, I had fallen into the life pattern I'd seen you and Shannon inhabit my entire life and considered it normal. I had become a victim of the idea that life success was measured by earning potential and stability. I had always been more interested in the present moment. I would rather enjoy the company I held than sacrifice relationships to move up some empty corporate ladder. I had a community of people who cared about me, encouraged me to drink in moderation, came to my art shows, and supported my music. A large group of people I saw every day cheered when I got home and showered me with love. I couldn't enjoy any of it because I was crippled by the idea that I was somehow failing at life. Happiness was staring me in the face, and I was too worried about my future to cherish it. The depression never faded, and I continued searching for the courage to end my life. Everything changed the night I rented seven pounds. In it, Will Smith struggles to live with himself after causing the deaths of six people and his fiancée. Racked with survivor's guilt, he kicks off this elaborate plot to identify seven people he could help by donating his organs to them. He kills himself, and his organs go to all the people he picked, and then they show up at his funeral, and they are like, oh my god, you have his eyes. It's this whole thing. The concept, while a bit unbelievable, was such a great idea. I wasn't encouraged to buy any jellyfish. That's ultimately how he did it. 
but I did realize I could be helpful to someone, even if I were just a bag of unused organs. I was at such a low point in my life that a bag of organs seemed like an improvement. It took a drama by the Fresh Prince to help me realize I was an able-bodied young man, capable of building homes for the poor, serving soup to the homeless, or working dangerous jobs for the people who would rather live. I felt selfish that I was taking iron pills and staring at my ceiling, trying to control my double vision when I could be out there making a difference to someone less fortunate than I am. Being sad was no excuse for being selfish. I decided I would dedicate my life to helping others, and I started first by working in a soup kitchen. I met good people and found other ways to help, but I felt I could do more. I tried to quit drinking during this time, but it was nearly impossible. I went to a salon to get a haircut, and they had free beer in the waiting area. It was hard to escape the temptation. Even when I could avoid the scene, I'd still think about drinking every few minutes. The amount I drank decreased, and my friends at Creekview were there to help me. I'd usually only be successful at quitting for two to three days, and then I'd break, but I'd feel successful if I just drank less each time. My goals for the new job were simple. It had to help people while also being so dangerous that the likelihood of death was high. The first and most obvious choice was at the Austin Fire Department. Saving someone from a burning building worked twofold. You saved the person in the fire, but you also prevented someone else from having to run in. If I died doing it win-win. I talked to a tall, noticeably unenthusiastic man at the front desk. Hi, I'd like to apply for a position. For what? He asked, looking puzzled. For? For a firefighter, please. I was starting to realize this might not be how you applied to be a firefighter. Oh, we're not hiring. My shoulders dropped at how quickly my great idea had fallen apart. My perfect plans for dying were unraveling, but then he added, We do have a point system, though. If you have a college degree, you get a point. If you know Spanish, a point. Military service is another point. They hire lots of military guys. I already had a point. I had an associate's degree, which meant I was well on my way to fighting some fires. Maybe, someday when they are hiring. My brief moment of hope was squashed by the urge to die more quickly than that. I thanked him for his time and went back to the drawing board. Applying to be a police officer briefly crossed my mind, but I imagined I'd end up ruining people's day more often than I'd save anyone. The ratio of giving out traffic tickets to saving lives was too high for my plans. I was surprised to realize that getting a job where you die is harder to find than I thought it would be. I started filling out the application for an offshore oil rig technician. You would don scuba gear, sink to the bottom of the Gulf of Mexico with an underwater cutting torch, and then most likely die in the effort to repair the rig. I realized it only checked one of the boxes, and without helping others, it didn't feel worth it. Every time I moved to a new city, I liked to drive around aimlessly and build my mental map. The next day I'll retrace my steps, but then take a left instead of a right and see where that takes me. It's an excellent way to find unique shops, good food, and new skate spots. One afternoon, I made my way into a small strip mall and decided to drive around the parking lot. It was just a dollar store, a Mexican restaurant, a tax place, and then three separate storefronts dedicated to the different branches of the military. I realized they were recruiting centers. The same butterflies you get when you drive through a speed trap caused my stomach to flip. Under the control of fate, something in my mind told me to pull into a parking spot. I pulled in front of the Navy building only because it was in the middle, and I stared at the life-size troop decals on each of the windows. Serious-faced men and women were running through a colossal battle scene with eagles, flags, and random military vehicles in the background. I realized I could help people as a medic in the military and the chances of dying were respectably high. Check and check. 
The scary part was that I knew they would hire me if I walked into that building. Then it occurred to me that they'd probably pull up my records in some overly detailed post-9-11 mass surveillance database and immediately throw me in jail. That didn't check any of my boxes. Why would I willingly walk myself into prison? I threw my car in reverse and went home. On my next mental map building joy ride, I didn't change course and found myself back in the strip mall parking lot, staring at the Photoshop masterpiece. Again, I talked myself out of it and drove away. The fourth time I pulled into the same parking lot, I had almost worked up enough courage to walk in, but instead, I called my brother for advice. Hey, what's going on? I asked when he finally answered. Nothing much. What's going on with you? He always had a tone that sounded partially playful but mostly annoyed. Well, I began. I'm thinking of joining the military. I didn't know what he'd say, but I would have bet money he was going to tell me it was a stupid idea. In some ways, I was kind of hoping he would. I mean, it was a stupid idea. I heard they could test drugs in your hair years after use. If they tested mine, it would break their machine. Yeah? Which branch? He sounded amused but unbelieving. He didn't know I was sitting in a parking spot outside the recruiting office. I don't know, Air Force, I guess. I was basing my decision mainly on the art in the windows and which one I could see myself in most. The army window looked too much like a Call of Duty poster, and I had no interest in living on a boat in the Navy. Yeah, you should do it. His sincerity took me off guard. This phone call was the first time I had gotten support from him for something I had come up with on my own. I didn't know how to respond. Then I realized he might not have known what I knew. There's a problem, though. I... I trailed off momentarily as I considered how much to admit. He had found pot plants growing in my closet in high school and had once temporarily disowned me after realizing I had a gram of butt in the console of my car while driving him around, so I knew he knew about me smoking weed. He didn't know the full extent of my criminal record. For example, I never told him about the time I smuggled weed across the Mexican border when I was 18. Part 7. Mass Surveillance Database my friend Jack had invited me to South Padre Island with his family. His mom, dad, and younger sister were in their van, and we followed behind in my car. Jack and I went to Mexico, bought a half pound of shiwag, and then did our best to smoke it all in a week. We didn't even get close, and now we were confronted with leaving it all in Mexico or trying to get it back home. We duct-taped our bag into a ball and then buried that ball in a larger bag of beach sand. We had heard drug dogs couldn't smell weed through coffee grounds, and I guess we just assumed sand was fundamentally the same. We hid the massive bag of sand under my spare tire in the trunk of my car and followed his parents to the border crossing. We had gone back and forth across the border for an entire week, and every time it was super mellow, but this final time across, there was a long line of vehicles. As we got closer, we realized the police were walking a dog around the outside of each one. We argued about whether we should turn around, but we would have had to head back down the wrong way, which would look incriminatingly obvious. It was too late. We would be arrested in front of his parents. His family went through the checkpoint relatively quickly, and we were motioned forward. They checked my license and asked if we had any drugs in the car. My stuttering response was probably grounds enough for an arrest, but he handed me my license back anyway. The dog walked around the car and barked at my trunk once. I let my body go limp, and I stared at the ceiling. I tried to enjoy the feeling of freedom for as long as I could. Again, the police officer should have arrested us on our expressions alone because we were clearly stunned when he told us to have a good day and motioned us forward. At the first gas station we hit, we pulled out our bag and rolled a giant blunt of freedom weed. 
His parents were furious, knowing we had just smuggled weed across the border and tainted their family vacation forever. Shannon didn't know that when you went to Africa for work, leaving me home alone for a month with a bunch of money to get by, I had attempted to double my money by selling Xanax. My girlfriend and I decided to see what they were like and took one each. I remember swallowing one with a beer, and then I immediately woke up the following day as if walking through a wormhole. I thought we had been robbed initially, but friends helped us piece the night together. Apparently, we thought the pills weren't working and took them all, finished a 30-pack of Keystone, and then crashed my car. He also didn't know that we used to add lighter fluid to cough syrup to isolate the dextrometh orphan and walk around town like zombies. He didn't know about the acid, the cocaine, any of it. How much did I want to share? I eventually settled on, I've smoked weed before. Have you ever been arrested before? He asked, no. I don't have any criminal record, but can't they find that stuff out some other way? And if they do, what happens? Do they just kill you? I don't even know. Every bad thing I had ever done had been racing through my brain the past few days while sitting in this parking lot. I made the crime of the month on Crime Stoppers once for wrecking our school in junior high, but we had never been caught. On multiple occasions, after skateboarding around the university's campus, we would break into the football stadium, a crime that was likely considered sacrilegious at such a storied franchise in a city overly crazy about football. You could walk up the ramp toward the field, between the parking garage entrance and the concession stands. Before the lock gates, you could climb the railing and get on top of the concession stands. From there, you could climb up and walk across a one-foot-wide beam connected to the second-story parking garage. The first floor was the only area of the entire stadium with locked doors, so once you got onto the second floor, you had full access to everywhere else. We did a lot of drugs and broke many things in that stadium, including in the coach's box overlooking the city. One night we found out how to get on the roof of the five-story school of engineering building. We went and bought some beers, set off the fire alarms in the building next door, and then sprayed fire extinguishers down the hallways as we ran back out of the building. We then headed back up to the roof across the street, where we drank our beers and watched the fire department attempt to figure it out. My name had to be on somebody's list somewhere, and if anyone had access to that list, it was the military. If you don't have a record, then lie about it. They don't need to know. He was being oddly supportive about this, and I considered telling him how much stuff I had actually done when he added, The military will lie to you if it serves the mission. Why can't you lie to them? As long as you don't smoke any weed while you're in, and you serve your country well, there's no reason they need to know about your past. He was making some excellent points. I had already scared myself away from drugs, so I had zero desire to play with that fire again. They only ask if you've done drugs to see if you're at risk of continuing to use them. I wasn't at risk, so I saw no problem with pretending to have always been on the straight and narrow. We got off the phone, and I stared at the window for another 45 minutes before finally walking in. I had convinced myself it was safe to go in, ask a couple of questions, and then bail. Part 8. Ropes Ah, oh, here we go. Hamilton. The gum lady had finally found my name on the cap and gown list for graduation. Here's your stuff, and congratulations, you earned summa cum laude. She reached into a medium-sized bin behind her chair and pulled out a set of golden ropes. A rush of relief, pride, and exhaustion hit me all at once. Tears filled my eyes, and I instinctively looked away in embarrassment. I took the ropes and left the hall as quickly as I could. 
I needed to get away from everyone and finish analyzing what had just happened. I turned a corner near the bathrooms and found an empty hall with a few couches and a study table. I threw my backpack and collection of grad swag on the couch. I laid my gown on the arm of the chair and placed my cap on top of it. Then I sat down and held the ropes in my hands, letting the tears roll off my cheeks. I knew you would be so proud of me and my brother wouldn't be able to take anything away from the accomplishment. I did as well as one could do. I had received multiple scholarships for academic performance, joined and led numerous clubs on campus, maintained a 4.0 GPA, and was now a father to a beautiful six-month-old daughter. I had been living with a nagging voice in the back of my head telling me I wasn't smart enough or dedicated enough to do something like this. These ropes represented the fact that I had not only done it but that I had been perfect. There were no wisecracks to be made and no eye-rolling. I did it, and I had left zero doubt about its validity. I had blown the monkey off my back. Those ropes had lifted a heavy weight from my shoulders, and I knew everything would change. I would be accepted as my brother's equal, both in your eyes and in his. I was a scientist just like him now. I would soon have a meaningful career, and I would show you both that I could be a great father and provide for my family just as you wished. I had done it my way, and my way was better than anything you or Shannon had ever suggested. As a scientist, I was inspired by the work, I could use my creativity, and it paid respectably well. I would be able to take care of my family while working a job I could love doing for the rest of my long career. I wasn't doomed to crunch numbers as an accountant. I didn't feel I had to sacrifice anything while still satisfying the expectations you and Shannon had set before me. As I sat staring at the yellow-colored ropes, I thought about all the nights I spent studying at school. I thought of the best teachers I had, and I thought of the worst teachers I had. I imagined how my past self would feel if we could meet each other now. Suppose I could go back to the Denver who was sitting in the parking lot of the recruiter's office trying to decide if the military was a good idea or not. I would lightly knock on the passenger's side window and wave. My past self would look out his window and stare in shock at my familiarity. His brain would struggle to recognize the face he had seen his entire life, but now on someone else. He would slowly unlock the door and let me in, too confused to ask how any of this was possible. Relax dude, I would say to myself. And you, but from the future, you're thinking about going in there, huh? I laugh as I recognize the awful war collage plastered across the windows. Ugh. Yeah. I gotta do something. Nothing is working out the way I want it to. I'm getting tired of trying. There are days where the only thing that gets me out of bed is the urge to drink at the bar. I look so young and thin, and I also look so sad. I put my hand on my past shoulder and give myself a firm squeeze. If you go in there, everything is going to change for you. You will work harder than you ever have in your entire life. You're going to end up in California and meet a woman that will enrich your life beyond your wildest dreams. I hope you take the time to try and enjoy it because it will fly by, but... I'm just looking back at myself, not knowing what to say. You might think that the alcohol helps you forget how you're feeling right now, but the only thing it has helped you forget is how special you are. I'm very proud of you. You're so close to figuring that out for yourself don't give up. I watched the person I used to be break down and start sobbing. I can tell he desperately wanted to hear that from someone. I'm glad I got the opportunity to be the one to say it. I'd squeeze my past shoulder once more and give him a warm smile, and then I'd get out of the car. Before leaving, I would say, oh, and you should skate more. I'd close the door and walk away. I'd get to a good vantage point on the other side of the parking lot and watch to see what my past self would do. He would just sit in the car for a while, unmoving. After a couple of minutes, he'd finally get out and walk into the Air Force recruiting building. I'd be so happy for him. 
I know how great everything will turn out, but I'd also feel a little bad for him. He's going to have a tough time getting through basic training, 